Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's Roundtable, where we invite three of Washington's top political journalists to look back on the events of the week. Issue number one, as it has been for the last eight weeks, the coronavirus. Every day, the grim numbers ratchet up. Now, 1.3 million cases in the United States, 77,000 dead, and 33.5 million Americans out of a job. The latest job numbers on this Friday morning, May 8th. The unemployment rate, which was at 3.5% in February, is now at 14.7%, again with 33.5 million Americans out of work. Meanwhile, under pressure from President Trump and despite warnings from the CDC, states are starting to reopen businesses. Are they acting too soon? And the coronavirus hits home when one of the president's valets tests positive for the virus. Under White House guidelines, that means that Donald Trump should self-quarantine, will he? In other news, Michael Flynn lied to the FBI and to the vice president, pleaded guilty twice, but Attorney General Bill Barr says he didn't break the law and he drops all charges against him. And Tara Reid finally appears on a national television interview and says Joe Biden should drop out of the 2020 race. So much to talk about. Let's get right to it with Nikki Schwab, a senior U.S. political reporter for the Daily Mail. Lauren Burke, writer for Black Press USA. Hi, Lauren. Hey, Bill. How are you? Good. Thank you. And Peter Nicholas, White House reporter for The Atlantic. Hello, Peter. Good to be with you, Bill. So let's start out right out with the uh, coronavirus because we are getting mixed messages. The CDC yesterday putting out guidelines for states on how to reopen. Uh, start to reopen uh, after the uh, eight weeks of self-distancing and wearing masks and businesses being shut down. And the White House rejected those guidelines. Uh, The president seems to think that it is already behind us and we should be moving on. Peter, are states opening up too soon? My sense is the president is fully prepared to open up, really wants to see this economy rebooted, and is very impatient with the stay-at-home orders. Uh, He understands that economic revival is essential to the country. It's important to his re-election interests. And I think that the CDC and uh, its guidelines uh, strike him as too hesitant, uh, too tepid, uh, not forward-leaning enough. And I think his impatience with governors who are taking a more uh, cautious attitude, his impatience is really starting to grow. I just don't think he's going to tolerate uh, much more. uh, The economy staying closed for much longer. And Lauren, the president yesterday speaking about this and and 
and basically admitting that there's a trade-off between more lives lost or businesses losing money. Here's the president. Now it's time to open it up. And you know what? The people of our country are warriors, and I'm looking at it. I'm not saying anything is perfect. And yes, will some people be affected? Yes. Will some people be affected badly? Yes. But we have to get our country open, and we have to get it open soon. Actually, Lauren, some people, the according to the University of Washington, we're now at 77,000 dead, and they say 135,000 by August. That's a lot of people. Yes, it is. And of course, as you remember, the first estimates, you know, what was it about a month ago, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci were in the range of somewhere between, I thought it was 70 and 100,000. Now we're at 135,000. And now we don't see uh, Dr. Fauci anymore because this president does not like to talk about facts, does not like to talk about uh the health of the country. He likes to talk about money. He also likes to do PR. So now he's turned this into, I'm going to try to ignore this, as we saw on TV this morning, where he didn't want to talk about it. He's converted into what is effectively a PR strategy. And I think that what he believes is that if he just doesn't talk about it, it will go away. But we now have a situation where we have the worst, uh, people are already predicting this is going to be the worst economy since the end of the Great Depression. The numbers are starting to reflect that. Obviously, when you have 20 million people uh, out of work in only one month, April, and 14% unemployment, uh, and the administration fighting against uh, health care coverage all at the same time, that strategy for this president is not going to work. Uh, he is not going to be able to PR, way, PR his way out of it or ignore his way out of it. Uh, but that, is, of course, is what he's going to try to do. So I think we're in for some perilous month, months to come, to say the least. So, Nikki, clearly the president uh, has kind of pivoted to let's get things back again. Let's get moving again. Um, most Americans, however, seem to think they're a little cautious about getting back to so-called normal. Uh, but there are some who have had it. Here's a, a good example. Uh, this is a, a man in down in Florida at a Publix market a couple of days ago, walked up to the market to buy some groceries, and there's a sign that says you need a mask if you're going to come inside. He is not happy. Here he is. You are in violation of my fucking constitutional rights and my civil rights. I'm filing a fucking class action lawsuit. There's no pandemic. I have a right to buy food without being forced to participate in a fake Global false flag pandemic. There's no pandemic. So, uh, Nikki, <laughs> people like him out there. Are, are these the people Donald Trump's listening to? Uh, yikes. Yikes. I think I think he's more so probably um, listening to potentially conservative talking heads and maybe not the guy that's screaming at the publics. Uh, but we've seen for a couple of weeks now where Donald Trump has sort of winked and nodded at these protesters. Uh, I think sort of the most I. Uh, sort of eyebrow rising uh, comment was, of course, when he tweeted that um, Michigan and Virginia and Minnesota should be liberated. Uh, and that was sort of his first sort of like, you know, wink, wink to those protesters. Um, and I mean, I, I mean, I think that people understand people are getting frustrated. I know that if you even look at the numbers in our own uh, fair city in Washington here, you know, you saw in the last couple of days, uh, people are not social distancing as much. Uh, they said that Cinco de Mayo, I think we got like a C rating because everybody like went out and like lined up for tacos. So I think, you know, the American population is getting 
restless, but I do think you're also right that people are being cautious. Uh, Lauren was saying he's sort of sort of trying to display this magical thinking right now uh, that this is all going to go away, that this is all going to get better. Uh, I, I don't think that you know medicine and science has shown us to be that's the case but you know you can tell that the president is sort of getting antsy and is very easily distracted by other things obviously because he, he was called into fox news this morning and he's been on you know ranting about uh you know michael flynn and, and giving sean hannity a pulitzer and, and all that jazz and has not even talked about the new unemployment numbers nor the coronavirus pandemic peter i want to come back to you today we have a uh, a real live test of the coronavirus at the white house it was revealed yesterday that the president's, one of the president's own valets, a Navy officer, uh, who serves him his meals, tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, the president basically said, so what? I get tested every day. I hardly know the guy. But he was certainly within six feet of the president of the United States. And today at the White House, the president is welcoming eight World War II veterans, all of whom are between 95 and 100 years old. Uh, welcoming them to the Oval Office to get up close, have a photo taken with them, and then go with them to the World War II Memorial in total defiance of every state and White House guidelines. Uh, what kind of a message does this send, Peter? Well, it shows the artificial bubble the president is living in. Um, everybody who is around the president is getting tested, and the president himself is getting tested routinely. But it still shows the fact that he was exposed to somebody who tested positive illustrates the seriousness of this virus and the, the transmissibility of it and how very difficult it is to keep yourself protected from uh, COVID-19. And I think what it demonstrates is the perils of opening up too soon, that you can, uh, we understand the, the imperative of wanting to get the economy going again, but people really aren't safe until there's dramatic, widespread, abundant, available testing. Everybody around the president is tested. The president is tested. And look what, what, look what uh, leaked through the cracks. Uh, there was somebody who was tested positive who was in the vicinity of the president. So it shows you just how dangerous it is to open up prematurely. And um, Lauren, one thing that we do know um, is that people of color, particularly African-Americans and Latinos, have been most seriously impacted by the coronavirus. If as the states reopen and as people go back to work, um, those who don't have to go back to work every day, who can work at home, are going to be maybe still OK. Uh, those people in more low income jobs, again, mainly people of color, are going to be the ones most impacted, correct? Right, exactly. And I think I saw a statistic the other night on CNN with regard to 60% of the deaths were African-Americans of that 77, now 77,000. So obviously it impacts disproportionately poor communities and uh, anyone who is a frontline worker who has to be out with the public uh, and uh, you're obviously cashiers at Target, all that, uh, you know, is going to run disproportionately uh, poor people in our country, which tends to be uh, African-Americans and, and uh, Hispanics. So that question um, uh, is definitely a challenge for a lot of the governors, et cetera. But as you notice, with, from the federal level, from the White House, at least, there's no discussion about any particular or specific aid to those communities. And in fact, they were sort of left out of the question with regard to small businesses, which most African-American small businesses are one-person operations. Um, 
you know, so there hasn't been a deep discussion about that. But then again, the White House has now positioned themselves where they really don't want to have a deep discussion about anything. <laughs> you know, the, the task force is being disbanded and we don't want Fauci out there. And so, uh, you know, that is going to come to a head. And I'm not sure how, why or how or why the president thinks that that collision is not going to happen uh, yeah, probably yeah. very soon. Yeah, I want to ask you about that, Nikki. Are we ever going to see the task force again? Uh, I mean, Mike Pence even yesterday, I mean, the president said we don't need it anymore. Then he says, I didn't realize how popular it is, so we're going to keep it going. Now Mike Pence says it'll be out by Labor Day, over by Memorial Day, rather. Um, It looks like they really want to get rid of this task force. Why? Well, I think in part because you've seen... um some some sort of embarrassing moments uh, come about because of the ta- the task force. I, I just think about that sort of cringy moment in the briefing room whenever um, you had a government official basically talk about new research, and then you had President Trump suggesting that you could use sunlight or disinfectant and inject it into the body, and then you see sort of that that face of Dr. Burke sort of in the corner, you know, looking like what the heck is he talking about? And and then, of course, she sort of inserts herself like, well, you know, there's uh, this is not meant to be a treatment. This is meant to, you know, kill the virus on surfaces. Uh, but it really has uh, some of these medical professionals have sort of kind of by accident, uh, you know, produced these cringeworthy moments for the president. Same with Dr. Fauci. I think that the president uh, hasn't necessarily liked some of the things he said in other sort of television interviews, not necessarily the ones where, you know, you have the president right next to him. Um, so optics-wise, I could see why the president perhaps doesn't want to have the task force front and center. I think the American people want to see the medical professionals front and center because uh, it, it gives them a little bit more confidence that the government is doing the right thing as far as the response. Yeah. Uh, now, I think the American public are not the only ones getting impatient with the coronavirus. So are members of the media, perhaps, um, eager for something else maybe to talk about, Uh uh, as a witness of that, the New York Times this morning, its lead story uh, up on top of the page has nothing to do with coronavirus. It is about Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn, former national security advisor, the attorney general of the United States yesterday dropped all charges against Michael Flynn, even though Michael Flynn uh, had lied to the FBI, pleaded guilty twice to lying to the FBI, lied to the vice president, was fired by Donald Trump. Peter, have we ever seen anything like this before? It's just a really unusual case, Phil. And it really does raise questions about the politicization of the Justice Department under Bill Barr. And you wonder, there's so many cases out there, uh, so many people going through the federal criminal court system who's, who are not getting this kind of attention people who, defendants who are not friends of the president, who don't have the respect of the president, don't have the attention of the Justice Department in this way. And you're wondering if this is fair and equal justice that's being dispensed. Uh, Are these other people, uh, other defendants getting the same kind of, are their cases getting the same kind of scrutiny and treatment uh, from the Justice Department? So I do think that it opens up it opens the Justice Department to charges that it uh, it's no longer impartial. And I think that it corrodes the institutional integrity of such an important department in our in our federal system, Department of Justice. Uh, Lauren, it does beg the question about whether justice was served in this case. I mean, the attorney general says there's no evidence he committed a crime. I thought lying to the FBI was a crime. 
Yeah, it is. It is a crime. And uh, of course, this is a travesty of justice. This is uh, the politicization of the Department of Justice, which we, we of course, saw from Bob Barr before with regard to the Mueller Ukraine. I'm sorry, Bill Barr. Thanks. Uh, Ukraine matter. So it's not surprising. I mean, this president, this White House is in gangster renegade territory. Uh, They think they can do whatever they want. And uh, I think that really what we're headed into uh, in this last six months is 180 days to Election Day is really them defining themselves. They're defining themselves in a way that I think will, in fact, decide this election. I think it's pretty clear. And even if you take out things like what's happened with uh, Michael Flynn, which is incredible to say, and you just do uh, the COVID situation, I I think this president will not get reelected. I mean, every day, every week, there's a new slap in the face to justice or democracy or the way that we've done things in this country uh, for decades. So uh, this is just the latest example. Uh, Obviously, Flynn uh, pled guilty twice. (laughs) You know, I mean, there's really nothing to talk about in terms of facts on this case. And yet he is let off. So uh, this is just another example of the renegade Trump White House that thinks they can do whatever they want. And um, here we are. Uh, So, Nikki, there are several people who point out uh, that this um, letting Michael Flynn off the hook, uh, coordination between the White House and the Justice Department is all part of the effort to shift the blame from Russia in 2016 to the Ukraine in 2016. Uh, which, of course, the president has been pushing as the theory for uh, a long time. Uh, do you think that's what it is? I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. Uh, I mean, this this has been, as you say, like sort of the narrative for months upon months upon months upon months. I mean, I mean, we're talking about this is why the president was impeached over this idea that it was Ukraine and not Russia. And he still, you know, doesn't want that sort of taint of Russia to... Uh, you know, question his legitimacy as, as the president. And that that's always been the case. Uh, so it definitely sort of fits into that mold. Um, but, you know, I, I also think that Trump just wants to see his guys uh, not in trouble anymore. I mean, I asked him a question at the briefing about, you know, Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, uh, and whether or not we would see pardons coming down the line in, in the near future, especially with the idea of coronavirus being uh, rampant in the prisons. And, and and, you know, Trump went off about it. And then he also brought up Flynn and was like, this guy, you know, he was treated terribly and, and sort of blames the Obama people and, and wants wants him out of trouble. So, you know, it, it, he, he looks at it as a way to for it to be a clean slate uh, for for sort of all of his people. But he, he wants that that smell of Russia off of himself and his allies. And today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod with Nikki Schwab and Lauren Burke and Peter Nicholas. We'll take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Today's roundtable brought to you by the Iron Workers Union, uh, over 120,000 strong under the leadership of President Eric Dean. As they say, the sky's the limit for them, for the iron workers, and, and that is literally true because they're busy building everything from our infrastructure to the superstructure of the great uh, tallest buildings in the world, all of the great work of the Iron Workers Union. Uh, we thank them for their great work for this country, building this country. Uh, thank them for the support of the Bill Press Pod and direct you to their website at ironworkers.org. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with today's uh, Political Roundtable with um, three top Washington reporters, Peter Nicholas, White House reporter for The Atlantic, Lauren Burke, writer for Black Press USA, and Nikki Schwab, senior U.S. political reporter for The Daily Mail. Uh, Politics, politics, 2020 is still going on. And the big news on the political front, well, two big bits of of, uh, news on the political front uh, this week. First, an ad put out by The Lincoln Project, a group of uh, disgruntled, if you will, Um, non-Trumpers among Republicans, led by George Conway and Rick Wilson uh, and a couple of others, uh, put out an ad, a one-minute ad called Morning in America. This is not the Morning in America Ronald Reagan saw, M-O-R-N-I-N-G. This is Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G in America. Here's the Lincoln Project. There's Morning in America. Today, More than 60,000 Americans have died from a deadly virus Donald Trump ignored. With the economy in shambles, more than 26 million Americans are out of work. The worst economy in decades. This afternoon, millions of Americans will apply for unemployment. Many are giving up hope. There's mourning in America. And under the leadership of Donald Trump, our country is weaker and sicker and poorer. So, Peter Nicholas, uh, there's some people who might ignore an ad like that, but not Donald Trump, right? No, Donald Trump will always take the bait. So an ad like that obviously got under his skin. He tweeted about it after midnight uh, the other night. <laughs> when, right. you, know, you would kind of hope the president would be sleeping, refreshing himself, <laughs> thinking, good thought, thinking positive thoughts. 
But uh, he was deeply annoyed by that and aggrieved and tweeted about it. Um, I do think that this probably struck a nerve with him, that this is uh, his big point of vulnerability. He is going to be judged by his handling of this pandemic. I interviewed Lindsey Graham, a uh, Republican senator from South Carolina, is close to the president recently. And he said, basically, this election is Trump versus the pandemic. It's not really even Trump versus Biden. It's how people perceive Donald Trump as having handled the worst outbreak in 100 years and one of the epic catastrophes in American history. Um, whether he can revive the economy, whether he can keep Americans safe, whether it's perceived that he did everything he can to protect the country in this moment, that's how he's going to be judged. This ad goes right to the heart of that and suggests that he was missing in action and bungled this. And I think that's partly why he was so brief. Uh, Lauren, interesting, the ad does not mention Joe Biden. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And it doesn't have to. It goes straight to what Peter just said, which is the president's confidence for office. It's not a, you know, it is really interesting to see how much better the Republicans are at messaging than the Democrats. And in this moment, you see, you see that the Republicans are quite good at messaging against themselves. So, so you take the Ronald Reagan ad, you, you change the word mourning, and you just absolutely annihilate and really create the narrative for what happens in 180 days on Election Day, November 3rd. Uh, it is it is a punishing ad. And obviously, this president, with his level of narcissism and ego and insecurity, uh, rage tweeted all day about it and into the night. And uh, that should, of course, surprise absolutely nobody. He uh, he, of course, could not take the criticism. And this is just the beginning. You know, we are at 77,000 dead. And imagine what we have when uh, and of course, over 35 million people, you know, unemployed filing for unemployment insurance. And we just, of course, saw the stat with the 20 million in just one month out of jobs. So imagine how these ads build as we go toward November with Joe Biden's ads and the Lincoln Project ads. Uh, once I saw that John Weaver was involved, uh, you know, of course, McCain's yeah. former aide, <laughs> I knew that this was trouble for the president. But this, this is going to get this is going to accelerate. You know, what, uh, Nikki, what struck me about this as a former campaign manager myself is how little money the Lincoln Project had to spend to get billions of dollars in free publicity thanks to Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, as Peter was saying, he always takes the bait. And so, I mean, I think they, you know, they realize that that's sort of his major personality, uh, I guess you could say defect. And so, you know, and, and as Lauren was saying, I mean, this is just the beginning of, you know, political attack ads. And so they basically know that they can just bait him and bait him and bait him. And really, they don't have to spend all that much on, you know, video quality even i mean it was just sort of a you know a couple clips uh, of, of people looking you know depressed and and you know empty streets and you know you got you got a winner there so uh it, it, it'll be it'll be an interesting six months <laughs> right until yeah. the election can i just add one point uh to that Please. Um, yeah. so it's interesting i think vicky makes a good point you did too bill in the sense that in terms of trump taking the bait there's so many instances where there'll be some story that ran in the Washington Post and New York Times that you may or may not have read, but Donald Trump has read it. And then he'll tweet out the story or some criticism or commentary on the story to his 75 million followers. And suddenly everybody is reading it. Everybody wants to read it. And, and talking like, about it. And is talking about it. It's like it seems so counterproductive and self-sabotaging 
to draw attention to the very story that doesn't make you look good. But he does this routinely. I just don't understand it. And meanwhile, I must say, Lauren Burke, um, that you are the first one on the roundtable, and this was over a month ago, to raise the issue and the name of Tara Reid. I had not even heard of her when you first mentioned Tara Reid. Now we all know who she is. She has now given her first uh, television interview uh, to Megyn Kelly a couple of days ago, uh, where she repeated her claims of sexual assault against Joe Biden and said he should drop out of the 2020 race. Uh, Does Tara Reid have any credibility? Well, I mean, I do think that it's really important in these cases to investigate before coming to a conclusion one way or the other. Um, But when I see people like Ryan Grimm and Rich McHugh, who is Ronan Farrow's former producer at NBC involved in this story, it made me pay attention because those are really good journalists. Uh, But I would say that, uh, you know, she sure as heck is no more or less credible than anyone else that we've seen come out since the, the, the back of 2017 when Me Too Uh, first started. And she does have more corroboration than the typical story that we hear. I mean, when you're hearing someone's mother on Larry King talk about something happening in an office, uh, you know, back years ago, and you're seeing, of course, we've got, you know, her neighbor saying that she had told her something in 1993, 96. But I would say, and I have to say, uh, you know, full disclosure, I interned in the Russell building around the time Reed was there for uh, Hugh Sanders, Ted Kennedy, John John Kerry. Uh, I find it personally difficult to believe that a U.S. senator in a hallway in Russell, which is a very public building, uh, would conduct any of this type of behavior. But I am a big believer in due process and uh, investigating everything before jumping to any conclusion for Joe Biden and, and for Brett Kavanaugh and for anyone else who's accused of this type of, of thing. Uh, Nikki, what do we make of the fact that she has changed her story? I was actually just going to bring that up because that that is sort of the uh, the the piece that I can't quite square in my head as a journalist. That it's it's you know even yesterday with the Megyn Kelly interview, uh, she's sort of like up the ante on the dialogue and and said that he wanted to uh, you know use a four letter word with her, uh, which was a piece of the story that we had not heard before. Um, and then some of the dialogue always sort of. Uh, struck me as potentially not, not, not squaring with you know Joe Biden, the the man that I've interviewed before. So um, you know it's 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 really hard. It's it's a big gray area because I do think that because we have some people able to corroborate uh, a bit of this, that something definitely did happen. Uh, but her original story, if you do recall, from 2017 was that. You know, he was sort of touching her shoulders and being kind of like a little bit creepy at work, which is sort of the the Biden that, uh, you know, other women have talked about. So, you know, it, it, it's it's been extremely challenging, I think, as a journalist to cover this in a fair way. Has Joe Biden, Peter, done as much as he can to uh, to tell his side of the story and to refute these charges? You know, he had a, an interview with Mika Brzezinski um, on, Just a, uh, a week ago today. Yeah, yeah. Recently, where I think he tried to forthrightly address this. But Mika made a point afterwards that I thought was quite interesting, uh, where she said she questioned him pretty hard on this and uh, was, you know, conducted a, a very fine interview. But I think then she said that um, she hopes that people will question Donald Trump carefully about uh, in the same way. 
about the accusations that he's faced from different women over the years um, in this regard. And I think that's something to keep in mind here that there's, um, you know, Trump has also faced allegations of uh, indiscretions uh, when it comes to women. And, um, you know, that can get lost in the frenzy over what happened between Tara Reid and Joe Biden. But uh, that, that's a, it strikes me that's a fair issue to raise, too, in this campaign. I yeah. think that's, you know, it's funny, Peter, that's an extremely fair issue to raise. Uh, the problem that the Democratic Party has, of course, is the hypocrisy with regard to Kavanaugh and the, the way that they're evaluating the Tara Reid situation. And unfortunately for them, instead of just embracing due process, they're, they're just effectively killing the Me Too movement over this Tara Reid uh, allegation. But obviously the Trump point is well taken. Uh, yeah. And one other uh, point about today, moving on here. Um, there's a young man in Georgia who would have celebrated his birthday today. He is not celebrating his birthday because he was brutally murdered um, by two men, a father and son, who were who murdered back on February 23rd, I might add, while he was jogging through a suburban neighborhood in Georgia. Uh, the father and son were finally arrested and charged with murder uh, yesterday. Lauren, what the hell took so long? We've seen the video. The video looks pretty clear. Right. Well, what took so long was that that particular area of Georgia is known for miscarriages of justice. And uh, Gregory McMichael and Travis McMichael, who were involved in this on the video, uh, Gregory McMichael worked for the police department. He worked in the DA's office. And so had it not been for this video coming out, and we've yet to really hear why it is that there's a guy in the back filming this altercation, right? So we haven't gotten to that part yet, but what we do know is that, uh, uh, you know, Ahmed Aubrey died on the 23rd of February. And if it hadn't been for this video coming out and the national pressure that built over the last two or three days going viral with everybody from LeBron James to Joe Biden and Donald Trump commenting on it, we would not have had the action last night in terms of the arrest last night of uh, Travis and, and Gregory McMichael. But it's a incredible story. Um, everyone is being reminded of, uh, of course, Trayvon Martin. Yep. And uh, we will see if justice, uh, you know, is is carried out in this matter. But I think it'll take um, it'll take some prior intervention from the federal government. Well, the father and, and son, uh, Nikki, do say that um, they claim that this was a citizen's <laughs> arrest because he looked like a suspect in some robberies that had taken place in the area. Um, and by the way, what I've read, um, Lauren and Nikki and Peter, is that the person who took the video was a, a, a just a resident nearby who had to stop because the, the father and son, they had stopped their pickup truck in the middle of the road. Oh. And he was coming down the road and he couldn't get around them. So he just, he doesn't know what's going on. So he starts filming. Um, but at, at, at any rate, um, under the citizen's arrest law in Florida, <laughs> Nikki, um, these men are claiming they they just did what good citizens will do. They see a suspect and they stop him. Yeah, that Hard that that I mean, stop him or like shoot him dead because those are two different things. Uh, and obviously the uh, the latter is what happened. So 
Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's probably good that, you know, you saw basically a crowd with pitchforks come out and demand that these men were arrested. And, and hopefully, you know, this family gets some some peace uh, sometime in the future uh, uh, with, with sort of prosecutions for this for this murder. Yeah. And, and Peter, it, it again, uh, we need to hear the trial. We need to hear their case. But it has it, we I think we all and both Lauren and Nikki have made this point. Without this video, uh, there would have been no arrest, no charges. Think of all the things that have taken place where there was no video, right? Well, yeah. If you think back uh, to the Rodney King example from the 1990s, where there was video of police officers. Um, Good point. Mm-hmm. Rodney right. King. Had that not happened, uh, we probably mm-hmm. would never have known um, about the abuse he was subjected to, which ignited a whole debate in this country about race relations, behavior of police, um, how African-Americans are treated when people are not looking. So yes, we, we now live in an age of, that was an early example of, uh, the ubiqu- that was before the ubiquity of cameras. You know, everybody's got a cell phone and everything, you know, there's very little anonymity in this world and probably justice is served as a result of that. Yeah. Oh, boy. A lot going on, and we covered a lot of territory today. Thank you, Nikki Schwab. Thank you, Lauren Burke. Thank you, Peter Nicholas. But we won't let you go uh, before, in the middle of all of this, while you're covering all of these stories and busy on every front, uh, every week there's usually one story, um, a serious news story or not a serious news story, that caught your attention. We call it our favorite story of the week. Uh, Lauren, you want to start us off? Uh, yeah, it's, it's something really brief. I got a note from a lady on Twitter named Karen Brittingham, who is restarting, uh, the echo, which was New Jersey's oldest black owned newspaper. Uh, it's, it's completely unclear to me when this paper existed, but she sent photos of the paper. And I know that this is of course is a podcast. So having a photo of this is not really useful in this setting, but in looking at the photos, I thought to myself, wow, it must've been the 1800s gotta be sort of the late 1800s that this paper existed in New Jersey. I had never heard of it, but that's my fun thing that kind of just sort of came in yesterday. And I just thought I'd mention that as, as my story for the week. Well, we'll check it out. It's an echo of the (laughs) echo is what you're telling us. That's right. Absolutely. (laughs) Peter, what what caught your attention? Um, I I enjoyed a a Danny Milbank column that ran a few days ago. Uh, President Trump gave a, um, did an interview with uh, Fox News in the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial. And he talked about how badly he's been mistreated from the press. Uh, This is um, something, a point he makes often. And what Dana did is he talked about how Abraham Lincoln, who let us not forget was assassinated in office, was treated by the press and how he was treated in the course of his presidency. And Dana included some quotes uh, about Lincoln, the orangutan in the White House, he was called. He's less refined than a savage. He's a fool, irresolute. He's a vacillating imbecile. He's an idiot of low intellectual capacity. It's a good reminder that Trump's complaint about how he's treated in the press is something all presidents have complained about. Nixon complained about it. Clinton, Bill Clinton complained about it. Obama complained about it. There's no president who's entirely happy with his press coverage. To some degree, it's just uh, it, it's part of the president's job description. You're going to get tough, critical, difficult press. And nobody compelled you to run for that powerful office. But if you did, you're going to have to accept some some of it. And I think it's a Dana's column is a good reminder that President Trump is not unique in this regard. Uh, amen. Amen. In fact, uh, 
uh, Abraham Lincoln was treated in terms of personal insults, right? A lot worse than Donald Trump has ever been treated by by today's press. Um, how about it, Nikki? So my favorite story of the week uh, was something that I covered yesterday. Brad Parscale, President Trump's campaign manager, put out a tweet likening their campaign operation with the Death Star from the Star Wars movies. Now, if anyone has ever watched Star Wars, you would know that the Death Star uh, was this sort of planet-killing battle station, the dark side, you know, it was, it was the bad guys. Uh, but it also got blown up in two of the movies because it had, like, some stupid flaw so, like, one tiny plane could get in there and, like, blow the whole thing up. Uh, so everyone, uh, sort of rightly so on Twitter, pointed this out. Uh, including Mark Hamill. He actually jumped in, the, the actor who, you know, obviously played Luke Skywalker. Uh, but then you also had Tommy, to, Tommy Veter, a former uh, Obama administration official, basically say it's a trap. Uh, basically that, that Brad Parscale purposely wrote the tweet that way so everybody would correct him and then thus make it a uh, sort of viral uh, political moment. <laughs> well, Star Wars, uh, Star Wars lives in so many <laughs> in so many different parts of our life, and now it lives in the uh, Trump campaign. All right, great. Well, let me. I want to tell you. My, my, so, my favorite story. I'm going to make my favorite story as well as my parting shot for today, uh, and start out by um, offering congratulations on the part of all of us uh, to our good friend Alex Seitzwald and his wife Lucia Graves who this week uh, welcomed uh, a new baby girl, Phoebe, into the world. Um, Alex and Lucia, everybody's doing fine. But I just want to point out that Alex is not the only member of our roundtable, regular member of the roundtable, who has recently given birth or welcomed a new a baby. Um, also, Jen Bendry, another regular from Huffington Post, uh, she and her wife, Jennifer, recently welcomed Hope into the world. Uh, and more recently than, than uh, Je Jennifer, Ginger Gibson, um, now with NBC News, formerly with Reuters, uh, and her husband Travis just had a little baby girl also named Maddie. I think it's remarkable that three members of our regular roundtable have given birth in the last couple of months. So I, uh, I just offer that out there. Uh, as a sort of a proud grandfather of these babies, uh, and also maybe as a warning to um, people who participate in the roundtable, uh, you know, that um, uh, some, place, some places you go, you might get the coronavirus. If you come to the Bill Press roundtable, you might end up getting pregnant. <laughs> like, uh, but also to point out that in all this time, this time when we are grieving so much about so many lives lost, uh, this is sort of the cycle of life, and it's nice to just take a little moment out to welcome some new beginnings that maybe balance out uh, some of the loss that we've suffered lately. So welcome to Phoebe and to Hope and to Maddie. And thank you again to Nikki Schwab and to Lauren Burke and to Peter Nicholas uh, for joining us today here on the Bill Press Pod. We'll let you go by reminding you one more time, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. Uh, wherever you listen to this podcast or any of your podcasts, uh, look for the Bill Press Pod. Click on subscribe and you are in. And then do us a big favor by telling all of your friends to do the same. And I'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, but also see you on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod and at Bill, at Bill Press Pod. Again, thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Peter. Thanks to all of you for listening. 
Stay safe. Be strong. We'll see you next time on The Bill Press Pod. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.